Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. It's great to be joined today by Sarah Park, a lecturer in Japanese culture at the University of Helsinki. Sarah is a sociologist by training who's worked on issues of gender, minorities, the family, and immigration in Japan. She's also published three books in Japanese, most recently one on her experiences during the COVID lockdown in Finland. Sarah, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Hello, Duncan. Nice to see you. And it's really nice to be invited to your podcast. Thank you. So this is the second podcast I've recorded with speakers from the recent Japanese Studies Conference that was held in March 2022 at the Copenhagen Business School, sponsored by the Sasakao Foundation. So, Sarah, the topic of Japan's immigration policies has long been a controversial one. Famously, during the Edo period between 1603 and 1867, Japan was largely isolated and foreigners had to live on the island of Dejima near Nagasaki. And that's a long time ago. But this idea that immigrants are not entirely welcome in Japan still persists. What's the historical context to the Japanese government's attitudes towards immigration? Well, one of the most recent examples is the entrance requirements or entrance restriction of the old people from overseas into Japan after mm-hmm. the COVID crisis, yes. course, which is often criticized as the latest Sakoku, maybe? Yes, right. <laughs> Just, isolation period, the new yes. isolation period. Yes. Of course, even before this COVID crisis or the interest restriction of foreigners or tourists or even to the students, of course, the immigration policy of Japan has been criticized by Japanese people or foreigners by themselves. They say the low asylum recognition rate, which is very notorious, and also the denial or disregard of human rights in the detention center which mm-hmm. sometimes put people into death in the worst cases. Mm-hmm. And also, the two years ago, there was a revision or trial to revise the Immigration Control Act and Refugee Recognition Act, which actually kind of peeled two years ago by the activists or the scholars and even some politicians in Japan. But maybe this year, this revision of Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act, which further makes the Japanese government facilitate the forced deportation of foreigners mm-hmm. easier. So this law can be submitted to the Japanese diet this year. So, yeah, the legal framework is obviously very important here. Could you explain something about the main legislation that's used to control immigration to Japan and how that legislation works? Originally, when we dated back like 70 years ago, there was two laws, or in the beginning, but only one law, mm-hmm. which is actually at that time imperial ordinance. So yes. the Japan Empire was legally existed. So in 1947, there was an imperial ordinance mm. And then this imperial ordinance was reformed into Alien Registration Act, Immigration Control Act. After both went through, both was somehow combined into one law, so Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act, in 2012. So the present legal framework is actually quite recent, but it's a yes. sort of amalgamation of the legislation that's been around for a while. Exactly. So what's the political context for 
this immigration control regime that Japan has. As a political scientist, I'm always going to ask this, does it have anything to do with the geopolitics of the Cold War? I was defeated in 1945 right. by Allied powers. And immediately after that, Japan had to deal with the liberation of the colonies, mm-hmm. and as well as uh, repatriation of Japanese people from the former colonies and also the war-occupied areas, as right. well as the people from the colonies who already had lived in Japan. So some Taiwanese Mm -hmm. and Koreans moved from Taiwan or Korean Peninsula to the mainland of Japan during these places were colonized. So there were some Korean people, there were millions of them, Mm -hmm. when Japan was defeated. So Japan and also, of course, the Allied powers or occupation forces had to deal with these two groups of people altogether. So one, in one hand, there were big Japanese repatriates. And also, on the other hand, there were the Korean and Taiwanese people who were, at the time, still Japanese citizens or mm-hmm. at least the subject of Japan Empire. And, of course, in 1945 and in five, four years in Northeast Asia, we started to have People's Republic of China mm-hmm. and in 1950, there was a Korean War. So it was, of course, during Cold War in Northeast Asia. So the Japan's immigration control policy at the time was trying to figure out who could do something harm to Japan's occupation policy by the Allied powers and looking at the countermeasures towards the communism in Northeast Asia. Right. It's a complicated story, isn't it? Till talking to you and reading a little bit more, I hadn't fully grasped just how complicated it was. I mean, the most important group that we're talking about here is really the Korean minority. Uh, These are people, some of whom came to work in Japan before the war, but very large numbers of whom were forced to move to Japan to provide labor and then in some cases to join the military during the war. And a lot of those people in that second category were then repatriated to Korea. So how did the immigration control policy relate to these movements of Korean minority? So when Japan was defeated, there were, yes, two groups of Korean people in Japan. Mm-hmm. And the one is the laborers and mm-hmm. their families who migrated somehow a little bit before Japan's right. defeat or Japan's at least the participation to the Second World War or Pacific War. But the people who were forced to work or forced to join in the labor in Japan, they repatriated by the end of 1945 or 1946. Most of these forced laborers to Korea. However, there are certain amount of Korean migrant workers who yeah. left their families, somehow worked, somehow settled in Japan, like five or even some 10 years. They were a little bit hesitant to return to Korea. And there are several reasons. One is there was a kind of severe requirement posed by the occupation forces to bring back to their home countries. The Korean people, when they try to repatriate to Korea, they cannot bring back anything more than 2,000 yen valued. Oh my. 2,000 yen value is something like four people's household monthly expense. Right. So it's very difficult for most of them to abandon everything they already made up in Japan and to repatriate to Korea with just one month expenditures. And the second is, of course, the severe, harsh political economic situation in Korean Peninsula. So it was divided by USSR and the 
United States. In the North, it was, of course, the severe political crash or assassinations, crash between the political groups, especially the North Korean Labor Party and also other nationalist groups as well. And in the South, of course, there was also maybe a little bit worse situation than North Korea because the smaller political groups crashed each other at the time. And plus, there was a huge inflation and the loss of the workplaces as well, and partly due to the huge repatriation from Japan. Even before the outbreak of the Korean War, there was a famously Austria or April 3rd incident in Jeju Island in the southwest part of Korean Peninsula. So there was not really a civil war, but a crash between the local islanders or South Korean Labor Party and the local police and even including the American forces. The exact number of the casualties are still actually unknown, but at least according to the studies for the survey by the South Korean government, around 30,000 people were killed in that island and the total population at the time was 220,000. So it was not really the situation for many Korean people in Japan to return to, or at least it was not really the favorable period. So many of them, especially those who had migrated well before the outbreak of the Second World War and had families, children's workplaces, homes in Japan, they were not really happy to return. And Besides that, there are actually some people who try to migrate from Korean Peninsula to Japan, looking at the political and economic instability. And some of them who migrated to Japan in the late 1940s to early 1950s, or the people who had lived in Japan before their repatriation to Korea. In Japan, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there were, yes, Korean people, Taiwanese people, Okinawan people or people from Amami Islands who were deemed to repatriate, but actually who gave up or, well, once tried but found out that it was not really the place to live or even to survive, re-migrated to Japan, a secret at least. So this is an incredibly complicated story. <laughs> Let me just focus on a couple of key things that come out of this narrative and this analysis. So we've got, within a couple of years of the end of the war, most of the Koreans, for example, still half a million or more left in Japan. But you also hinted at some tensions within that community. So I'd read before that some of the Korean population in Japan was effectively loyal to what became North Korea, and some of the population was loyal loyal to South Korea, which is a curious situation because you've got groups of people who are minorities and are in a very difficult situation within Japan. But there's also a kind of contestation between these two groups inside Japan, which is a very messy situation. Is that still the case that the Korean minority inside Japan is split between those quote unquote loyal to either North or South? I'm now middle of the 30s and in my generation or younger, I do not really think it is the case. However, mm-hmm. it was really an issue for my parents' generation. So let's say in people among 60s. Mm-hmm. So of course, these people were the generation that experienced more political activism, student activism. Mm-hmm in the 1960s and 70s, but also in 1960s, 70s, 80s, 
So they faced more ethnic discrimination or racism in Japan. And these ethnic organizations are almost the only way for these people to survive. So if you are going to buy a house and try to、mm-hmm. make a loan, Japanese banks did not lend you money,、mm-hmm. did not offer you any loan. So there is Korean bank or、mm-hmm. pro North Korean bank, I'll say.、Right. And、uh, which school you should, for example, send your children if you hope to help your children to inherit Korean language. It was actually late 90s. 50s, that these Korean organizations became more pro North and pro South. Yes, so we have two ethnic organizations one is Chongryong and another、yeah. is Mindan. And Mindan is from the very beginning, it has been very pro South Korean government organization. But the Chongryong is originally kind of a whole ethnic Korean organization in Japan, but after the tension and split from Japan Communist Party, it became more pro North Korean organization in Japan.、Mm-hmm. After this separation of the Chongryong from the Japanese Communist Party, Chongryong became more pro North Korean organization, and the Mindan it is pro South Korean government organization. Still, of course, these days, these two. Organization exists, but and it has been spreaded and crushed, kind of fold, quarreled each other. But I hope it is easy among the younger generation. Right. Yeah. To return to our core topic of immigration, I guess most people would assume that people of Korean descent who've been in Japan in most cases. Descended from people who moved there before the Second、yeah. World War, they should have become Japanese citizens long ago, because that's been the case with most immigrant communities in developed nations around the world. Why is it that it's been so difficult for people of Korean descent to gain Japanese citizenship, or did they not want to gain Japanese citizenship? The biggest reason is originally Japan's immigration control policy was made up. In order to supervise or control the Korean minorities in Japan.、Mm-hmm. So, the、uh, Korean and, of course, the Taiwanese are the original target of Japan's immigration control policy. So, usually, when we say immigration control policy, you usually imagine the people who come to Japan to live 10 years, 20 years, maybe five years、mm-hmm. or so. But historically, Japan's immigration control system was designed to control the people from former colonies. So, people who had Japanese citizenship before. Right. So, they suddenly, one day, became foreigners who d o e s n t really have the residential status at that time. So, these people came to Japan without any. Passport or visas because they were not required to have it because they were Japanese、mm. citizens when they migrated to Japan. And suddenly they lost both Japanese citizenship or residential status in Japan and suddenly became the target of immigration control. And when exactly did that happen? Does this coincide with the end of the Japanese Empire? So Japan was defeated in 1945. Japanese Empire legally demolished in 1947.、Mm-hmm. And at the time, these Koreans and Taiwanese were in very much ambiguous situation. They were not really recognized by foreigners, by Japanese government, because Japan was occupied and it does not really have any diplomatic leadership by itself. In Korea or in China, there was still no government at all. At least until 1948 and 1949, there were no governments in the Korean Peninsula or mainland China or in Taiwan. So these people became very ambiguous situation. 
in terms of nationality and citizenship or belonging to the countries. So Japanese government claimed to the occupation forces and also to these Taiwanese and the Koreans that they had Japanese nationality so that they have to obey Japanese laws, legislations, jurisdictions as well. But after 1952, when Japan became independent after the peace treaty with Japan, these people suddenly lost their Japanese nationality because according to Japanese government's explanation, no Japan is independent and Japan accepts the independence of its former colonies. So suddenly, I'm sorry, Koreans and Taiwanese, you are now not Japanese. Congratulations. Wow. So that was something of a mixed blessing, the recognition of independence for yes. people in that category. So yes. you're left with, I guess it's more than 800,000 people to this day who continue to be very, very long-term resident aliens, but not citizens. Exactly. So actually, these people, so both Koreans and Taiwanese, regardless of which Korea or China you are loyal to, people lost Japanese residential status and until 1991. In 1991, Japan reformed its Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act and started to issue a special permanent residential status for those who lost Japanese citizenship or Japanese nationality upon Japan's independence in 1952. So after almost 40 years, these people from former colonies obtained permanent residential status in Japan, but not really recognized as Japanese citizens at all. So does this mean that when I first went to live in Japan in the 1980s, and I had what we used to call the Gaijin card, this little blue book with our fingerprints in it, yes. that basically people of Korean descent had a similar kind of status? Yes, exactly. So at that time, these people, some of them, especially who did not choose to be recognized as a citizen of Republic of Korea, if these people does not want to be recognized, then these people was a stateless situation. Right. Oh, so that's much worse than those of us living there as foreigners because we had another mm. nationality, but people loyal to the North had no real effective nationality at all. No, not at all. And that meant they couldn't go anywhere, presumably. It would have been very difficult for them to travel beyond Very difficult for them. Right. So that continued until as recently as 1991. Well, I still would like to say that most of them are not really super particularly royal to the North Korea, but they just... No, I mean, indeed. It's just a kind of technicality that they found yes, yes. in this situation. Yes, right. Yes. So those who remain to, say, the Korean nationality... Not North, North South, mm -hmm. Korean, let's say, place of origin, who wish to be registered as just Korean. Yes, they are still actually in the same state as stateless people because Japan does not recognize North Korea. And also to be registered just as Korean in Japan doesn't really mean anything, except you have the special permanent residential status in Japan. So it does not facilitate you to apply for any passport, for example. So there are people even now who can't get passports. Yes, exactly. And how many of them? Not that big numbers. Now it's estimated around 30,000. But it's still a significant number of people. It's a small town's worth of people in Japan yeah. who can't leave. <laughs> yes. And you mentioned that there were an interesting category of people who left Japan mostly for Korea, then decided they didn't really like it there because things were extremely difficult at that time and came back illegally to Japan. These are people that you talked about in your presentation as irregular migrants. What mm -hmm. happened to them? Did their status get regularized later on? 
Yeah, actually, in my PhD thesis, I conducted interview to these people who secretly returned mm. or entered into Japan faced with these third incidents or Korean War. Mm. And most of them later obtained or regularized by obtaining the area registration card or, you know, the guiding card yes. for themselves. So at that time, it was really arbitrary. So they, for example, forged their registration card. For example, my grandfather, who was also that irregular migrant from Jeju mm. Island, according to my uncle's explanation, he just bought somebody else's registration card in black market mm. and added his own photo on that oh. card. So when he passed away, well, his funeral had to be conducted in a different name than his own because it was his registered name. So my family name is Park. Yes. So my grandfather's family name is also Park. Mm. However, in his alien registration card, he bought somebody whose family name is Lee. Right. <laughs> and he okay. just, you know, had <laughs> his own photo on that registration card and oh, he right. kept using it all his life until he died about 73 years old. Right. So when he had his funeral, there was Mr. Lee's funeral. And everybody knows that. It's not his name. Right. So the people who were living with the realities of these strange hybrid identities <laughs> for yes. decades, it's really an extraordinary situation. Well, when my grandfather passed away, I was just one year old, so I do not remember his situation at all. But that kind of story was not really extraordinary. The Korean community in Japan, especially right. certain communities which accepted these irregular migrants after the war. Right. So from my childhood, I was really fascinated by the question of identity. And yes. I, <laughs> I always had to think about it, but I already knew in the beginning that people can live in such a strange situation. Absolutely. Of course, identity has become a very sort of academically fashionable topic to talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah. these days. But <laughs> yeah, for people like you, you've really been living it your whole lives. In the current day and age, Japan faces a labor shortage. We have very serious problems of an aging society with falling birth rate. It really does seem that Japan needs immigration quite badly at the moment, and yet this has not been at the forefront of government's agendas. Do you think there's any prospect for any substantive, not just negative reform and making things more difficult, which you were alluding to earlier, but any sort of progressive moves in the direction of more liberalization of immigration policy in the future? Actually, I do not really have any positive idea about the Japanese mm. immigration control policy because there are many countries that accept a lot of migrants but does not really facilitate their basic human rights to these migrant laborers, like the mm -hmm. case of Singapore, for example, or other Gulf countries. So these countries have a lot of labor migrants to fill up the labor shortage, but they usually have the very poor citizenship or very poor human rights standards. And I'm quite afraid that Japanese government might follow that way. So accepting more migrants does not necessarily mean that the country becomes, let's say, an immigration society. Mm -hmm. So from the early 1990s, Japanese government sometimes refer to European countries, for example, like Germany, that they are failed case of accepting immigrants. Mm -hmm. So they accepted labor migrants and now they have a social problem. So we cannot follow their ways. And what now Japanese government is doing is accepting students and 
trainees, technical intern trainees, well, and also, for example, the wives or husband of the Japanese people, prominent residential status holders. And these people are the biggest sources of the labor migrant in Japan. If, of course, they are in Japan, we have a lot of residential statuses. That enables you to work in Japan. But these labor migration visas are not the main sources of migrant labor in Japan. So, which is students, technical intern trainees, they do not really stay in Japan forever. They usually, the students aim at study in Japan like one, two, four, five years, and they are expected to return to the country. After just to study over. And technical intern trainees, in their cases, they originally are designed to stay in Japan only two years and、uh, maybe successfully five years at the longest, and then they have to return to the country. So, what Japanese governments now try is to accept students or accept trainees, accept foreigners, and rotate them. Like、mm-hmm. five year round to fill up the field that faces the severest labor shortages, like agriculture or fisheries. I think the Japanese government thinks that these, their, let's say, tactics works quite well in recent years. Right. So the solution has been to roll out a variety of programs that allow for temporary residence and temporary opportunities to work without really opening the door for people to migrate permanently to Japan. So that's the way of dealing with this labor shortage problem. Yes.、Yeah. So I actually quite sure that Japanese government will open up migrants or will try to increase the population of these students and technical intern trainees in the future, but it does not really mean that Japan really open up or、mm-hmm. start to accept. Orders, or right. people in Japan. Right. This is a fascinating topic. Are you planning to publish anything about the issues that you talked about in your CBS presentation and in this podcast? <laughs> Thank you very much. I am actually preparing a book, which hopefully will be my first English monograph. Great. It deals with Japan's immigration cultural history and its policy, trying to relate all these issues into Japan's current social problems like xenophobia or racism, nationality act, and so on. And also, yes, together with you, of course, we are planning to write up or rewrite the very famous book of Kyodankan, Contemporary Japan. Right. No, I should say that Sarah and I have a plan to work on the fourth edition of the textbook Contemporary Japan and insert some of these themes and issues more prominently into that textbook so that they may be more widely read about and understood by students and others. So, thanks so much, Sarah, for taking the time to discuss your ideas about immigration,、um, minorities, and all sorts of related issues in Japan today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm sorry that maybe I talked it really complicatedly, but thank you very much for inviting me. No, you did not. It was all very, very clear. So, I'm Duncan Macargo, director of NEAS. I've been in conversation with Sarah Park, a lecturer in Japanese culture at the University of Helsinki, about her fascinating research on immigration control policies in Japan. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. Listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.